Anybody have any prayer requests? We're going to yes. pray for you. <laughs> Thank you. I cannot. Actually, I, there have been times I'm always grateful for your prayers. I can't tell you I'm how serious I am about that because mm -hmm. I need a lot of help. I'm, I'm serious about that. So. I know I'm serious. Good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let you out the heart. Good. No. <laughs> Keep her and her away. <laughs> Marianne. Okay. And she unfortunately did not have a strong faith, so I think she needs lots of support. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you have a pencil, Doctor? Oh, yeah. I've got a. Um, I'm going to mention this prayer, but I want to tell you before we start, so you know. Um, I talked to our son Christopher a couple of days ago not a week, four, four or five days ago. They're the ones from Ave Maria in Florida. They had to leave, if you remember, because of the hurricane, and they were here for a week. They returned. So we were just checking and see how they were. Um, he was describing a student, and for Christopher to say this is, um, says a lot. He says he, he had this one student who, his way of putting it was hands down, the best student he ever had. Hands down, the best student he ever had. Um, and his brother died just a, a few days before we spoke. Apparently he was on drugs, and this is a Catholic family. The one kid, he said, is the best student he'd ever had, was leaving school, I think, and going on a missionary work. He was gonna do missionary work. So obviously a dedicated kid who took his faith seriously. His brother, Luke, was on drugs, and Chris, his father went to Christopher to talk with him about it, and um, they just talked, and he got to know about it, um, and then learned a couple of, I guess a couple of days, or sometime later, this just happened last week, that his brother, Luke, was on drugs, and I apparently took some drugs that had a, a, I guess an overwhelming effect on him, the police were called in to help because there, there was some fear about violence. And apparently the kid took off. They live on a canal, and he jumped into the canal and almost drowned, was taken to the hospital and died. So close to the point of suicide, you know, and this is, this is a Catholic family. This is not a, so you can imagine how devastated the parents have got to be. So I, I would ask for your prayers. The boy's name is Luke, the father's name is Tom, the mother's name is Susan, and one of his brothers, there's several, the one brother that left to do the missionary work is named Peter, I think so. I'd be grateful if you would just say a prayer on your own some other time. <coughs> the father's homily, or the readings, I'm sorry, couldn't find the book. Um, I was enjoying the reading today too, for those of you who are in Mass. The Old Testament reading, I thought it was from Baruch, and then Father said something else, but what, I have to go home and look at the Magnificat, but it was the Jewish people lamenting their sins again and again and again, I'm calling to mind their iniquities, their betrayals, their turning away from God, um, and counting on, hoping on God's forgiveness to bring them back again. 
So I just keep that in mind when we do our prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you. The gift of yourself this morning in the Mass for your presence and the graces that you offer all day long. If there's any purpose to what we're doing, it's to try to see you more clearly around us, more immediately, because we depend so much on our eyes and our ears, but particularly our eyes. And where we don't see you, it's as if you're not there when you are. Strengthen us in our efforts to learn to see you, to be aware of you, to know of your presence, um, to grow in our trust in you, and to take a joy. Um, so often hard because we're so aware of the wrongs around us. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Ask a special blessing on Mary Ann. Receive her into your kingdom. Make an opening for her to come to you. Um, forgive her her sins. Um, but um, let her grow into the joy of those things um, she may not have known while she was here with us. I ask a special blessing um, for Tom and Susan, for their son, um, an awful way for people to grow in their faith, but let it happen, that, that their loss will make them firmer, stronger, and all that they hold dear. Um, watch over Peter, Luke's brother. Um, um, he has to be serious about his work with you. Um, let the loss of his brother not discourage him, strengthen him in his efforts, his prayers, um, his faith in you. I ask a special blessing on Luke. Forgive him his sins. Um, um, wipe them away. Um, prepare a way for him to come to you. Um, and let our prayers for him, um, if he's to be in purgatory, speed him on his way. Um, help us all not to be afraid to keep in mind our sins, our iniquities, the sins we carry with us now. Our work is to carry our sins with them and put them away day by day as we go. Give us all the courage to do that. Um, always always wanting to grow more fully into the love that you call us all to. We offer these prayers, Christ, in your name. Amen. Okay. Let's do uh, the next section of four quartets. I'm so glad you're back. It has not been the same without you here. What's that? What's that term? Obsessive compulsion. 
Obsessive dis what's obsessive? Obsessive disorder. disorder. What's it called? C O C O C O C B. It's just another example of one of the aspects of my OCD or whatever it's called. <laughs> to not have you sitting there, to not have you sitting there throws off my mornings. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll try to be better. <laughs> oh God. Okay. No more vacations for you, Miss. That's it. That's it. Okay. Um, let me just um, read over some lines just to remind you. So. I don't want to take the time to read the whole poem because it's too much, but to, to keep it in mind so that we can move forward with it, okay? Remember, um, Bert Norton begins with those opening meditations on time. Very abstract, very philosophical. He's not doing what poets ordinarily do by describing something concrete and real. He's meditating on um, the nature of time. And what we see as we move through the, the quartets is that at least here in, in Bert Norton, he's dealing with two things, primarily. The past and its place in the present and what he calls this still point, this point of intersection between eternity and time, okay? That's crucial. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crucial for us to hold on to it. The most important thing, charge her. Charge her. Charge her double. Oh, look at that. Make a triple. I already paid them, right? I think there, We have to keep in mind this intersection between eternity and time. And he makes it clear in the opening, if all time is eternally present, there's no way to escape it. There's no way to redeem it. And what he does in so many different ways, and would, would go into them in the poem, is show that only through time is time redeemed. But it's only by virtue of a God who came from eternity and brought eternity into time that there's any hope for redemption. So at the center of this poem is an absolute belief in Christ and a sacramental way of looking at things. We will see that in a number of ways as, as we move through the poem. So hold on to that, okay? Um, Bert Norton, um, it's interesting to think about. Norton was a home in Gloucestershire in England. Um, it burned down in the 18th century, 1749, something like that. It burned down in the 17th century. So the very title points to a home that had a historical existence, was real in history. It was a manor house, Wandunol way of being, and it burnt down. And it's important to remember that because it's lost. It's there and not there, because it was destroyed in this fire. Because so many of the images make us aware of things that once were and are no more at the same time that in some way they are. Now I know that probably sounds confusing, but it'll, it'll, get, it'll get clear in a second, okay? So, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, 
All time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been, what has been, point to one end, which is always We have to learn to live in the present. But one of the themes, I mean, it's just stunning to me to think about how often we've, come, we've gone over this in our works together. How much easier it is to live in the past in our wounds and to try to escape them by hoping for a future not yet. But every time we do that, we put ourselves out of time in a world in our heads. So that in some ways we're not living in the moment, that still point connecting with God through Christ. We live before or after. And it, I mean, that's intellectually, when you say it, it sounds easy, but think about it. How easy is it to live in the moment with Christ? Um, he says it at one point. Um, um, where he talks about heaven and hell. Yet the enchainment of past and future woven in the weakness of the changing body protects mankind from heaven and damnation, which flesh cannot endure. We're not ready for either heaven or hell because there's too much reality in either one of them. The task of living in the moment with Christ, which is the only way to make the moments meaningful, I would say is the task of a saint. So um, that was the opening. And remember, um, he, 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 he talks about this passage that we did not take towards the door never open. And he takes us back into the garden. And remember the garden is a part of all of us. Jung said it's a part of our collective unconsciousness. We carry it with us. And I want you to just think about this for a second. How do we know that something's not right in the world? What gives us a sense that that's wrong? It shouldn't be that way. Unless we had in us some implicit sense of what was, there was nothing but good. So as we move through the world, that garden haunts us. It's by means of that in our collective unconscious, deep within us, that we can have a sense that this isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. Something's wrong. Moderns would say it because the principle that drives most of us is self-preservation. If anything threatens us, we get angry, we know it's wrong. Eliot would say it's deeper than that. Jung would say it's deeper than that. We have within us the spiritual unconscious of what once was a perfection, the way it was. We carry it within us, and it gives us the sensitivity that something's not quite as it should be. So the garden is with us always. So he takes us into the garden, and notice what he does. But to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaf? I do not know. <laughs> Already, as we're entering the garden, he gives us an image. I'm assuming this is potpourri, rose leaves, yeah? Um, now, stop for a moment and just think of that. Why rose leaves, disturbing the rose leaves? Potpourri, roses, are dead. They don't exist anymore. And yet their fragrance carries on. It's as if they're still present even while they're dead. So already we've got an image of something not living, but still present in a living way, paradoxically, yeah? Is that and notice the word echo, my words echo thus in your mind. And then he goes below other echoes that have the garden. What's an echo? 
It's like the, the Potpuri. And that goes not the real thing. It's a reflection of something else coming after that points us back to that thing. But it's not the thing, right? You're in a canyon and you call out with your voice and you get an echo back. It's not your voice. So Eliot's giving us all of these images of something that was, that has traces of it still. Echoes, Potpuri. The flowers are dead, but the scent is still present and alive, living. So he takes us into the garden, remember the bird, and, um, and he gives us this wonderful image. He says, um, shall we follow the deception of the thrush? That thrush will take us out of the garden in a second. The thrush is... I'm, um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys remember when we did the Robert Frost poems, we did three bird poems. We're going to do them, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to do the bird poems again. Because Robert Frost has a poem called Come In, in which he talks about the, the, the music of the thrush calling him into the woods. The thrush is, I think, considered the, the, the bird, that whole family of birds, to be the bird that gives off the most beautiful music. So it haunts, it takes us back to this music. I wish we had the Frost poem. I'll do it again because Frost is very aware of that too. It's a beauty in nature. The bird sings. So there's, there's an echo of something that once was in nature in the song of the bird. He, take, he takes us into the garden. We see the couple. We're back in our first world. And you remember there's this image of looking into the pool and, and then um, a cloud coming and the couple behind disappear. And remember, when he first describes them, they are invisible. We can't see them. There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves in the autumn heat. They look at the image, it passes, and then suddenly the bird speaks again. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. Then we have the second movement, right? In that movement, he's bringing contradictory things together in, in order to show us that all things are related, all of them. Remember in the garden, um, remember that line, the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery and the unseen eye beams crossed for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at. For eye beams to cross means they're connected. They're connected. For the rose to have a look of being looked at means the roses receive something. They're not just inert objects. It's as if there's intelligence and purpose they can receive. That's the way it had to have been in Eden. Because there was no dichotomy between subject and object. We've been I've been talking about beating you over the head with this notion. In the modern world, in the fallen world, the tendency of, his, of us is to look at others as objects. We objectify everything. It, we know from our faith, we know if you think about it all, the only way we can unify, become one, is through love. Love is unitive, it brings us together. Without love, we remain in that dichotomy, subject-object. We look at another as a thing, even if it's a person. Here, the I-beams crossed, they're connected. 
They're commensurable. They're one with each other. And the roses have the, the, the flowers have the look of being looked at. So the roses are receiving something. They're not just objects. Eliot's taking us back to the garden. That's the way it was. Is that clear? Hmm? Is it? No? Ask. Maybe it will become clear. Okay. Well, like, let me just, just repeat that again and then go on. Our tendency is to look at another thing as a thing, not to be one with it. Remember I said for St. Thomas, each thing is a subject in its own right. We read that in Hopkins' poetry with the Kingfisher and everything naming itself. Each thing in creation is a subject in its own right. A tree is a subject. There was a Latin word for that. Um, um, each, each thing is a subject. We see it as an object. That's a eucalyptus. That's a pine. That's that Mr. Smith. You know. We don't see them from the inside. The only one who does is God because he created each one of us. The closer we get to God, presumably, the more likely it is that we will be able to enter into the interior of another person. What are we doing in Faulkner? We're entering in. I mean, I, to me, that's a consummate act of love. How in the world do we get in? Who knows somebody from the inside the way we've come to know Benji? I mean, one of the great gifts for me, I'm assuming it's true for you, is to read a book like this makes it possible for us to enter into the, another, the interior of another person. Because if we don't, we do what these, everybody in this book is doing. They completely misread. So long as we continue to see others as objects, we will always misread. Somebody, they won't do, they won't do what we want them to do. And when they don't, we will get angry. That's the way we go through the world. Because we don't enter in. We, I mean, we don't have the love to make that union possible. So Eliot's taking us back to the garden where that dichotomy didn't exist. Then the bird comes and says, go, 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 because we can't stand it. It's almost too much pain to do that. I hope that's clear. I th I'm assuming all of us know how hard it is to live with the sins of another person. It's much easier to say, get out of here. To bear them is a lot of reality. That's what Christ bore. That's why it's so important, so important to go to him, to try to be with him, to bring that. Because without it, we're lost. I don't know if that makes it clear. The, but. the clause I don't get is, and the unseen I-beam cross. Mm -hmm. See, I, mean, I get the bird, the scent of the roses. It's just, it's an image. Oh, Linda, and if you... Um, it, actually, here, well, let me just show it's, it's just an image. All I can do is give you the source of it. If you go back to medieval poetry or early Renaissance poetry, if you, if you read John Donne, there will be some poems in John Donne. There's actually a poem, I can't remember the name of it, um, Two Lovers on the, on the Bank, where they look at each other, and Donne describes them looking at each other and their eye beams crossing. It's a physical image, as it's a metaphor for making it clear that they become one with each other. They're actually connected. So it's just a, it's a metaphor to express the difference between looking at another person as an object and being one with that person. Aren't there times, haven't most of us, I mean, I'm assuming, even, you know, that, that in our innocence, there are times when we looked into another person's eyes 
and felt so one with that person that it was a strange moment. Even if it was only fleeting, you know, it was there. Vulnerable, one, the object put away, you become one with another person. And Section two, we get all of these garlic and sapphire in the mud, clot the bed and axle tree. I think the bedded axle tree, it, it, it's an axle, like the axle of a chariot. Some, some critics look at this as an image of a chariot. I don't think it's that. I think the axle tree is the cross. It's the tree that is the axle of the universe. Um, that's my sense of the image. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the, the... But if you take every one of these, the trilling wire in the blood, sing below inveterate scars, we all carry wounds, appeasing long-forgotten wars, the dance along the artery. All of these things are all interconnected. Because you know in the modern world, the modern belief is nothing is connected. We're all atoms in space. But he says, he gives us all these images, and then he says, are figured in the drift of stars. The circulation of the limb are figured in the drift of stars. And then that last image, which is really lovely, in light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boar hand and the boar, pursue their pattern as before. Remember the, the boar chase in the medieval hunt? You'd sick these hounds, you know, the kings and the lords would, would have these boar hunts and they would all pack up and the hounds would go after the boar. It's a violent ritual, right? I mean, the, the boar is one of the most, by the way, the, the boar hunt is at the center of uh, Sir Gowan of the Green Knight. It's a lovely medieval, medieval poem. Um, if you know anything about boars, you know they're one of the most dangerous animals. They, they wound. I mean, they, they, dogs come out killed and sometimes men too. It's a violent act. But, but notice the way it's, the meaning it takes on here. He's, he's, he's taking one of the most violent acts like the, the garlic and sapphires in the mud. He's taking a very violent ritual um, and relating it to the, the um, constellation in the heaven. Because there is a boar constellation. For Eastern religions, they, they, they see the boar there. So he's connecting things that are in motion and potentially, and at times, violent and relating them to a pattern, the stillness of constancy. And what's he do in the next section at the still point of the turning wheel? He gives this image of a still point. And remember this, um, I gave you the image of Dante. Remember when Dante's on the back of the universe, he looks at the center and he sees God. That at the center of all of the orbits of the planets in the universe, this is Dante, he's looking back. From a material point of view, the center is the Earth with all the planets moving around it more and more, faster and faster until you get to the prima mobile, the outside one, which is moving so fast it's standing still. It's imparting motion to everything. That's the physical view. If you look at it spiritually, it's inverted. So you move towards the center, um, in which case each sphere gets faster and faster until you get to the very center, and there, the point is moving so fast it's standing still. That's that still point. You got that from Dante. A physicist, think about this, a physicist would say, and if you've read your Euclid, you know that a point 
you know that a point from Euclid has no dimension. And physicists would say, I think, if physicists would say that a wheel turns in, in motion and the outer part of the wheel is moving faster than anything else and as you move towards the center, right, because it gets slower and slower until you get to the point and they would say to the point which is not moving at all. Everything else is moving around it till the outside is moving faster. So Eliot's taking all of these images, the echo, the, the potpourri, the rose, something that once was, that, that is in some way, the Burt Norton, the home, um, as ways of getting to this still point, this intersection of time with eternity. Um, so we come to section three. Um, at the end of two, he was talking about all of these things that weren't quite what they should be. And this grace that enters into them at the, in the middle of section two. But I cannot say where this dance takes place, and I cannot say how long for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, that's so crucial because most of us live in our appetites. We want things all the time. So we're caught in desire. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and outer compulsion. Because desiring things gives those things a power over us. The church keeps saying, we have to break these attachments because so long as we can't say no to them, those things in the world have control over us. The release from action and suffering, release from the inner and outer compulsion, mm -hmm. yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still, <coughs> there it is, a white light still and moving. What is that? If it's, if it's anything, it's Christ. Erebung, and I love that. It's German, it means um, exaltation. Means what? Exaltation. Exaltation. Listen, if, 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 if anybody, if, if that were in English and you came across and said exaltation, your mind would go right by it. Why does he put it in German? Because you know that sometimes when we hear a different sound, it... You stop. Hmm? You stop and finish. Yeah, it has a different meaning. We don't go past it. If this is a grace, it's almost like we need a new word for it. Let me read it. Um, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long, for that's to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion. It's surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving. Erebon, without motion. Concentration without elimination. Both the new world and the old make, that is, he's, once again he's bringing all these opposites together to, to give us this sense of what it is we're all striving for and how hard it is. But he puts it in German. Because it seems to me if you hear that, it, it's as if it captures something of the mystery of a word that we lose when it becomes familiar to us. 
Um, time past and time future allow but a little consciousness to be conscious is not to be in time. But only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church smoke fall be remembered. Involved with past and future, only through time, time is conquered. Three, I'm just going to read this and not comment on it. So, here he's talking now about this world and all. This is one of the darkest passages because he's showing us so much of what's really wrong that's a part of our daily life that we don't even look at. Here is a place of disaffection, time before and time after. In a dim light, neither daylight investing form, that is, these are the things that are not. When the light is out, the light, the light makes us aware of the beauty of shadows when it's out. But we're not there. This is not a place of light. So he's taking us into a dark place. Time before and time after, in a dim light, neither daylight investing form with lucid stillness, turning shadows into transient beauty, with slow rotation suggesting permanence, nor darkness to purify the soul. This is the dark night of the soul, this is St. John. It's not this, it's not this, right? Both of those things would be good. Daylight investing shadow, the dark night of the soul. He's talking about this world before and after that's a place of disaffection. All the things that are not good about this world nor darkness to purify the soul, emptying the sensual with deprivation, cleansing affection from the temporal. Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction. That to me is one of the most perfect examples. You know, sometimes I watch young people, particularly young girls, on their cell phones texting. They're not in the world. It's just Distraction from distraction from, I mean, you're, you want one thing to distract you after another, after another, but you're not there with other people in a moment, connected to the world. You're in a world of distractions, constantly somewhere else. Distracted from distraction by distraction. Filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid, swollen, that is, it's infected. Tumid apathy with no concentration. Men and bits of paper, and notice both of them are whirled by the wind, not just the paper. Men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time. Wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. Remember, it's always before and after. It's not in the present. Eructation, which is belching, this wind, bad breath, bad belching, you know, this wind. Um, whirling things. Eructation of unhealthy souls into the faded air, the torpid, dull, sluggish, the torpid driven on the wind that sweeps the gloomy hills of London, Hampstead, and Clerkenwell, Campton and Putney, Highgate, Primrose and Ludgate. In America it would have been Times Square, Hollywood, Dallas. Um, not here, not here the darkness in this twittering world. Descend lower. We've got to go lower yet if we're to get where we're going. Descend only into the world of perpetual solitude. World, not world, but that which is not world. Internal darkness, deprivation, and destitution of all property. Desiccation of the world of sense, 
evacuation of the world of fancy, inoperancy of the world of spirit. This is the one way, and the other is the same, not in movement, but abstention from movement. While the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways of time past and time future. Notice their meddled ways, how fixed people get, how fixed we all tend to get. Remember Ahab's description of iron rails, that he's on this thing, this path he can't get free of. That we, we get so caught up with our appetites, we want things so badly that, that they become fixed in this, these meddled ways. So there are two ways of approach to God, not this way. This is a way of disaffection. There's the dark night of the soul, the um, via negativa, the, the way of negation, of doing away with things. There's the way of Dante, the, the way of affirmation of image, of affirming things, that the, we know the things, we know the invisible things by the things that are made. We get to God through his creation. Those are the two ways. But Eliot's saying, but of both of them, what's crucial to both of them is um, not in movement, but abstention from movement. I, I don't think by that it means you don't move, because remember, Dante's moving all these. But there's a sense in which we learn to quiet the desires that keep us from being, holding our course to where we should go. So that, that is one of the darker sections of Brent Norton. We'll do the fourth one, which is really short, next time. Um, if it isn't clear now, it should get clear as we move along. But the amazing thing about Bert Norton is that Eliot's bringing together the vision of a mystic, the way the mystic looks at the world, where you learn to see past the things of the world, at the same time that he's learning to see through those things. That's what creates all these tensions that um, he's bringing two ways that are usually at odds with each other together. And he's showing us that everything's connected. We, we, have, we have to somehow live more fully in time in the right way if we're to be re redeemed in time. And there is no redemption outside of time. We are corporeal creatures. That's our nature. It's only in time that we're redeemed. Um, okay. Remember... Um, just to briefly, quickly look back at the Quentin section. Um, we said that The Sound of the Fury is a story about a family going to hell. Um, um, it's a family falling apart. The quote is taken from Shakespeare's Macbeth exactly at that moment when Macbeth realizes all the schemes that he created are falling apart. He just learned that his wife died and in a moment, in the next moment, he's going to see Dunsing and Wood move. And he, he will know that everything he's done was wrong. Um, and that's what Faulkner's giving us here. He's showing us the decline of a family. In some sense, it's a symptom of a decline going on in the South. We already saw it. We got a glimpse of that and go down Moses. I think it's really important to say that I just don't think this is Southern. The, the, the disintegration that we're experiencing in this family is true of America, that he's showing an America that's lost his way. Um, this is a family without God. This is what happens when you take God out of a family. So everybody in the family 
I've talked about this before, I think there's a Calvinistic spirit behind the whole work. Um, people tend to see things in terms of black and white and there's this awful sense of something predestined to this family. There's repeatedly from members of the family and from the black community, they keep saying this family is cursed. It's under a curse. Benji's an idiot, the father is a lawyer. He drinks himself to death. And it's important to remember when um, they, the mother wanted this. They sold the property, Benji's property, to come up with the money to send Quentin to Harvard. You know from the mother how important um, prestige is. She constantly complains because she sees her husband as coming from a higher family than her own. And she lives with that as a cross. She makes everybody aware of it all the time. So sending Quentin to Harvard is not a small thing because that's a sign of continuing the, the, the giving a value to the prestige that's so important to her and obviously to the father. Because remember, the father is the son of um, a Civil War colonel. Actually, if you, if you don't remember, he's the colonel in... Uh, Huh? Or sorry, General in uh, Good and Moses. Remember General Compson when um, in the last part of the Ike episode when Ike wanted to stay when Sam was injured and, and the bear was killed and Boone was injured? And um, Kaz said, you're going home, if you remember that scene. And General, Com General Compson said, scolded Kaz and said, this boy knows more about you and banking than you know you will ever. That's the same war hero. Except remember, the war heroes came home defeated. This is his son of a war hero general, defeated. So his son carries the sense of a defeat. I've, I've repeated that. I think the, the, the South lived. Faulkner makes that clear in that long dialogue with Kaz, you know, in, in part four of the of Good and Moses. He said, the South lives under a curse with slavery. We were defeated. And he gave all those signs of how certain generals were just strangely defeated, as if something strange was going on. Um, so this sense of the South being under curse, that it committed this sin, is peculiar to the South. All the Southern writers know it. The North has almost no sense of that. Benji's an idiot. The father's a lawyer. Quentin, whom they sent to Harvard to get this great education, commits suicide. In 1910, 19, 1910, Cassie gets married. Cassie gets married. She has a child. Herbert divorces her. The father goes to get the child, Quentin, and brings it home. 1910, his son dies. 1911, an illegitimate child. 1912, the father dies. Why? Because he drank himself to death. This disillusionment and despair that lives in this family. Uncle Maury commits adultery. We know that early on. Um, Quentin commits suicide. Caddy married. Um, she was promiscuous. Um, and then Quentin runs off. She's carrying on with her mother. I want to come back to that because there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, there are three governing perspectives that I think are important when we, when we read this. One of them is this conflict between the Civil War sorry, between North and South, continues after the Civil War. It doesn't stop. They are two very distinct peoples. We talked about this with Moby Dick and Godown Moses. The, 
the North is very individualistic. Um, the South is very um, community-oriented. There's a sense of a we. They're, they have this identity with the land. Um, we see this tension carried forward in what happens in the story because Quentin goes to Harvard, which is in the North. And all the characters who are there are given to banking interests. Herbert, Gerard is wealthy. But Herbert particularly, and he makes it clear, he was kicked out of a club for cheating. He says to Quentin, as you grow up, you'll learn more about the world. The way you hear cynical people go, and they said, this is the way the world is, so you, you go along and do the same thing. Um, all the traditional values that are agrarian in the South are disappearing. So we've got this, this struggle still going on between North and South. Harvard is Northern. It belongs to that northern world. Quentin has left the south to go north, and that's where he commits suicide. So there's a contrast between Harvard and Jefferson. Jefferson's an image of an agrarian way of life. That's one of them. The second is, you can, we, can, we can mark the decline from Damity's death, the grandmother, and Quentin's running off at the very end, right? Because Damity, she died in what, 18, I think 1898. Remember the, in the Benji episode, they had that funeral. It was Damity's death. Damity, it, we, we were, we're, we're aware of this, particularly from the mother. Damity was looked at as a Southern lady. You can put quotes around that. She was raised to be a lady. So is the mom, and you can see what happened with that. Damity dies. That marks the death of that old way of living. What's replaced it is Caddy with her promiscuity, Quentin with her promiscuity. This is a serious thing for me when I think about this. This is not small. When the, when the, when the traditional notions of a lady or a gentleman disappear because they disappear with Damity and they disappear with Quentin, what defines a man and a woman? In the North, it's get ahead, step over everybody, be successful, be wealthy. Is that clear? So from Damity's death to Quentin's running off, all we see is a decline. That old way has passed. Damity's death marked it. Quentin's running off. What do women do? What do women live for in the modern world? What defines them as a creature? What defines man? I'll come back to this in a minute. But that's a governing perspective. We're witnessing a family decline from that moment to Quentin's departure for running off. The third governing perspective is this Calvinistic, what I'm calling this Calvinistic view. Um, where is that? Um, oh boy, if I lost this again. Let's see if I can find this. There's that passage where the mother is... Um, I think it's on 101. Hold on. Yeah, turn to 101. Uh, this is with Jason um, um, leaving Harvard Yard again at the bottom of 102. 
He's just got the news that Gerard's mother has left him a note in his room, and he's going to return to his room and read it. And he has these reflections, these memories on his mother. <coughs> Bottom 102. What have I done to have been given children like these? Benjamin was punishment enough, and now for her to have no more regard for me, her own mother. I've suffered for her, dreamed and planned and sacrificed. I went down into the valley, and yet never since she opened her eyes has she given me one unselfish thought at times. I look at her, wonder if she can be my child. Who's the mother's focus on right now? Herself. Herself. It's not her daughter. It's just it's so clear to see this. Her focus is on herself. Um, I mean, it's one of the ways she feels sorry for herself. I mean, look what I've done for you. I've loved you. You've never given me. I mean, the incredible irony. I hope the irony is clear. If she's faulting her children for not loving them, what's the irony? Does she love them? I mean, have we, have we seen her do one thing that was for the good of her daughter? For that daughter's good, not herself, her child. If she can be my child except Jason, he's never given me one moment's sorrow. That's one of the grimmest ironies. I mean, if you've read the Jason section, you know there is no, there is no creature in this book more selfish than Jason. Um, I mean, he, he's such a product of his mom. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I thought that Benjamin was punishment enough for any sins I've committed. I thought he was my punishment for putting aside my pride. She has ever put aside her pride. And marrying a man who held himself above me, I don't complain. I love him above all. I don't complain. I see now that I must pay for your sins as well as mine. What have you done? What sins have your high and mighty people visited upon me? But you'll take, you'll take up for them. You always have found excuses for your own blood. Only Jason can do no wrong. Only Jason can do wrong because he's more Bascom than Compson. God, think about the harm that that's done. That artificial comparison that she's constantly made, and that she uses to define her children and herself and her husband. That the the love of respectability of having this place in society, a family name, how important that family name is. Um, while your own daughter, my little daughter, my baby girl, she, she is, she's no better than that. When I was a girl, I was unfortunate. I was only a Bascom. I was taught that there's no halfway ground, that a woman is either a lady or not. God, this is just hard for me to read. Um, um, I, I, I'm going to ask everybody to think seriously about this. I, I met somebody in this last week who talked about her son in terms of having Satan in him. If you grow up with a Calvinistic view, good or bad, just stop and think about this for a second. If you grow up and there's good or bad, because I talked about it, in a Catholic worldview, there are gradations. We're asked to be virtuous, which means we can measure virtue and try to become better. If it's a black-white thing and you're either damned or saved, what happens when you see sin in another person? Huh? I mean, I hope that's clear. I think I gave you the example. Our, our daughter-in-law, Christopher, the, our middle son at, at uh, Ave Maria, his wife was raised in a Calvinistic faith. I mean, to, or, um, there was a schism in their church. I mean, it was strange to, we found out about these things in a backward sort of way. When she was a teenager, she went to a counselor because she was addressed, depressed about something. And the counselor's response to her was to say, the, Something like, I don't remember the exact words, but something like that. Those are, those are signs that you're among the damned. Oh, oh, God. If you were a girl distraught and 
on the verge of depression emotionally, and somebody told you that. <laughs> well, I mean, we, yeah. I mean, we talked about when we talked about Ahab and his anger at, you know, if 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 you see sin in another person and you have a black-white view of things, how else can you look at them except negatively? If you don't, if forgiveness, bearing sins, is not a part of your life or forgiveness, what do you do? I mean, the one thing we can say about this story, if you found it, show me, because I, I can't recall anybody in the Compson family forgiving another person or even bearing sins of another. It's not within their way of looking at the world. If sin's there, and I, I'm asking you, look at the modern world. People get married all the time. When they get married and suddenly encounter sins, what do they do? They take off. I mean, if there's anything we don't do well in this world, it's deal with sins. And we're looking at it in a, just a remarkable way here, it seems to me. <clears throat> I was either a lady or not, but never dreamed when I held her in my arms that any daughter of mine could let herself, don't you know? So, what do we do when a daughter gets promiscuous? Or, I mean, and then I, I guess the question that I haven't asked is, if, if this is the way the family was, how can you do anything but what Caddy did or that Quentin did? If there's no forgiving, why live? Or how do you learn to love? I mean, where does love come from? And if there's nothing in your religious practices that get you there. So we're watching as a world, experiencing as a world without Christ in very dramatic ways. You don't think Caddy could have made another choice? I, well, what we've got, I mean, I don't know, Linda, what we've got is the story. And by the way, if you haven't read the appendix, what the appendix makes clear is that when Caddy runs off, after Herbert divorces her, well, we get her here. I mean, you know that she keeps trying to help Quentin. She gives this money to Jason and he steals it all. She can't see her daughter. She tries to atone. Um, J Jason doesn't help with that. He does everything to keep them apart. This is her daughter. She's trying to do something. We know that. We know from the appendix that she runs off and marries a Hollywood executive. That lasts for five years. We don't know what I mean. This is Faulkner's appendix. And then the last thing we know about Caddy is that she took up with, a, with an officer in the Hitler army. So his picture, he, this is not a Hollywood sentimentalizing of it. What he's showing is it doesn't get better for her you know, with whatever choices that she makes. And we know that those things happen in life. Um, so, um, I, it seems to me we, we're, we're, ex we're allowed into this human family. I think very human. I think all of us are in it. Um, and watching what happens when Christ is not a part of it, um, and what happens when the religious background seems to be Calvinistic. I mean, we don't have any textual evidence for that, but indirectly there's this very dark black-white view. The, mother's, the mother sees herself as Christian, her language is of a Christian, but we don't see a forgiveness or a mercy. We see this frightening sense of sin, an awareness of sin. Caddy, or Quentin says in the Benji episode, remember when they fight at the end, when they come to the table, we talked about the Quentin episode. She leaves the swing with the guy, remember in the red tie, she, she goes home and she and Jason fight and she goes off to her room. 
um, we, we see this, um, she says, I want to go to hell, I want to die, I don't want to be here anymore. Caddy said similar things, but, but Quentin does a number of times. I wish I were dead, she wants to go to hell. Quentin's answer to his problem is to want to go to hell with Caddy so the two of them can be alone. So there's no sense of a merciful God, a forgiveness, but there is this strong sense of a possible damnation that runs through almost everything. It's veiled, you know, it's, it's not a major motif, but it's certainly there a lot. And that's Calvinist. Yeah, I mean, uh, well wait, hold on. Yes, I mean, in the South I would say, because we've seen that, the, I mean, the, the roots of, the, the, we saw in, in Moby Dick, the, the roots in the North and the roots in the South are largely Protestant um, and in, in fundamental ways Calvinistic. I mean, Melville's answering it in Moby Dick and Faulkner's answering it here a century later. Um, hold on, where was it gonna go? Um, sorry, I've lost my... You were talking about the mother and selfishness and no, the No, no, I'm done with this, just... It's this, um, anyway, it's this strange mix in a culture, and we're watching the effects of it here. Um, we talked about the, the differences between the Benji section and the Quentin section. Remember, I, I asked everybody to, to think about the stories as a self-contained plot. If we look at the Benji section, it seems to me what we're seeing is, strangely, I think we can say that Benji is one of the few people in the story who's really capable of loving, and he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. If we look at the plot of the Benji section, I, I think we can describe it as a longing for Caddy, a waiting for Caddy. It's love waiting. It's, it's not love, it's desire waiting. Everything he does, he, he cannot distinguish time. So in his mind, Caddy can still arrive at the gate. And we know that 10 years ago she disappeared. He doesn't know that because he, he has no concept of time. So he's stuck, genuinely stuck. And we'll see that at the end of the book because if, if anything happens to take him out of his accustomed ways of doing things, he goes nuts. You know that, he cries, he, he becomes hysteric. He has to have absolute control over everything. So desire is waiting in him and we know it will never be fulfilled because Caddy won't return. And it seems to me one of the saddest aspects of that action, if we call it the plot, is um, that he has no words to describe, to express what he feels. Remember, I read those two scenes earlier. is very clear, they're the opening scenes. When she unsnags him from the fence, she says, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to say? It's just lovely. Um, he, and he can't talk. Um, and then a few pages later, we get the scene in which he goes out to the gate to meet Caddy. They, they, they dress him up inside, do you remember, to get him warm. He goes out, Caddy's running to him. When she sees him, she runs. This is her brother, she loves him. The next scene, it's, it's a part of the same set of things. The next scene, he's indoors getting ready to go out, it's winter. They put on gloves, they send him out, and he goes to the gate. And Caddy comes. I, 
I think she says, what, what are you trying to say? She made there, but I'm not sure, but clearly is going out to meet her. In the very next scene, he goes out and the gates open. They left it open. He gets out to the girls and he says, Faulkner says to him, I just want to say, I just want to say. And we know, we don't hear what he wants to say. And I ask that question, what's he trying to say? I, my own reading of this is, I don't think it's I love you, because I don't know that he has the words for it. But whatever, whatever he's trying to say, I think has the, we have to see this in the, it's taking the form of expressing a longing for another. This longing. He waits for her. She comes running. So at the center of his soul is this great longing for which he has no words. And I asked, how could you have, how could you have the Benji section narrated? Because he's not narrating. You know, it, it's an, we're given the narration. We're given his interior. My suggestion was that that's the logos. That, the, that at the center of every soul, even if it's an idiot, there are these words trying to get to the word, the word, this longing. Because, and I, I think I mentioned this, imagine the trinity of persons, the Father, the Son, Christ, and the Spirit. I can't see them speaking to each other. I mean, maybe, you know, they don't need to say. I mean, they, they're not in time. But we're in time, and if our end is to return to them and the intimacy exchanged with them, then like that deer in the, in the psalm, the deer panting for water, then I think in every human being there is this longing, this desire to return to them. It seems to me that's expressed most perfectly in Benji, that that's what he is. If we took the Quentin plot, we'd have to say it's desire thwarted, frustrated. He has this ideal of chivalry. He idealizes everything. And because he can't complete it, it becomes perverted. He goes to his father to say he committed incest with his sister as a way of saving her. I mean, how perverse is that? As, as if he's saving their honor by saying he had incest with her. So we see in Quentin this tendency to idealize something so much that it gets twisted. And the end result of that is that he creates this fiction. He says to her, let's say this happened, this happened, this happened, when it didn't. He wants to create this story to spare them. Um, and the end of that story for him is the two of them being in hell alone. He wants to possess her, have him t to himself. So I think one of the things Faulkner's doing with that Quentin action, that Quentin, is exposing an element of selfishness at the root of the chivalric ideal. The code of honor that men have, we saw this if we go back, certainly if we go back to the Iliad, and I, I think it's a pretty universal critique. The honor, code is, the honor code is really important for men to live up to a code of honor. That's really important for men. But concealed at the center of it is some pride, something, the male ego. And I just, I think in Quentin it's defeated. You know, um, he, um, he almost fights with Herbert. Um, he, he has that fight with Gerard in the car when Gerard is talking about all of his conquests of women. Quentin gets really angry and, and says, do you have a sister, and hits him. Because his sister defines everything he does. Gerard knocks him out. 
he wakes up. Remember that I told you that that's the longest um, flashback? That's all, that all takes place while he's unconscious. And the two most important things in that reverie, that, that those two involuntary un, or unconscious memories, are that episode at the, at, the, at the branch in water with Caddy where he has a knife to her throat and let's, says, let's take our lives and go to, go to hell in that bright flame. And then the episode with Dalton Ames, when he goes to Ames on the bridge and says, get out of town, and Dalton Ames picks him up. And the next thing we know, Quentin is waking up because he passed out. Wants to know what happened. So over and over and over and over again, he fails with the little Italian girl. He can't find her home. What does he finally do? He gives her a quarter and runs. Um, at, at Harvard, he has to live with the humiliation of being a virgin. So he doesn't, there's, there's, there's nothing of the way that he's been raised to prepare him to deal with this world. Not from his mom, not from his dad. And what we're seeing in him is a whole way that's passing, that's taken a perverted form, this old chivalric ideal. And it'll, it'll I mean, it, if I should come to this right now, um, let, me, let me raise it here. If we look at all three men, I want to come to Jason very quickly and do this really quickly, but if we look at all three men, remember the Platonic scheme of the soul, that the soul had three faculties? There was the rational, the, the, what the Greeks called thumos, spiritedness, and the appetites. The rational, you all know, the thumos, the spiritedness, was what we saw in Achilles. Spiritedness is, is these two are, are repetitive, they're erotic. Reason is intellectual. The spiritedness is eros, desire directed towards noble things, truth, beauty, goodness, honor. The, 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 the spirited soul of a man shows itself in anger. Sing used the anger of, you know, of, um, of Achilles. Um, when you love honor and nobility and truth and things like that and somebody offends them, the natural response is to get angry. Justice, those things. So Achilles was the spirited soul. The appetites are eros, desire directed towards the lower things, physical things. So these two parts of the human soul, the spirited and the appetitive, are both erotic, they're desires. But one is directed towards noble things, the other is directed towards physical, what we're now if we, if we look at the human soul, we can see that each one of the characters matches up with one of these faculties. So in one sense, Faulkner is giving us an image of the American man, dissociated. Jason lives in his head. He's purely practical reason, critical everything. He doesn't desire honor. There's no, I'm going to come to him in a minute. Quentin is the spirited, but there's nothing to live for. What's he to fight for? And everything he fights for is gone. That honor cone is gone. Benji lives in his appetites completely. And here's the curious thing. Every one of these men, each one of them, is defined by their relation to Caddy. Jason hates her. Quentin loves her. So does, I mean, yeah, so does um, Benji, but in another way. And here's my question. Take away these traditional values, because Faulkner's got this very much in his mind. Take away these traditional values. 
where there's no longer a reason for a man to be chivalric and there's no longer a reason for a woman to be a lady. What did they become? In the modern world, what I'm, I'm, I'm really asking this seriously, what, what in the modern world is a woman to become as a woman? And what is a man? A thing in a, in a machine, a clog in a machine, a wheel? A thing a, a, of the state, an object of the state? to move forward the interests of the state. I mean, Faulkner's giving us a pretty devastating picture of the threshold of modernity. We're right on the cusp of modernity. What happens to the relationship between a man and a woman? There's nothing that goes on here that isn't defined in terms of a woman. She's lost her place. Men have no place either. So it's a pretty dark picture. Oh, so let me just finish up. I want to look at the Jason section very, very briefly. And then I have a serious question about him. I said of the first two sections, if you look at the Benji story, nothing happens. They go along the fence, look for a quarter, come to the swing, they find a condom, they go home and argue and the day's over. The Quentin episode, Quentin, is wandering around town. He meets this Italian girl, tries to get rid of her, and comes home, dresses up, and goes off. We don't see him committing suicide. Nothing happens. In the Jason episode, we can say the same thing. He fights with Quentin in the morning when he goes off to school. He takes her to school. He goes back to town. He checks the stock market through the day, and he finds that it went up in the morning and started to go down. And finally, at the end of the day, he goes back and learns that the stock market has dropped terribly and they advise him to, s to sell and he buys. He's so contrary. <laughs> Everything he does is contrary. Um, um, he, he reads the letter from Maury asking for money and he reads the letter from um, Lorraine, the prostitute that he visits. Um, he goes to get checks to, um, to give to his mom. Quentin comes in um, because she wants her money and he deceives her. Caddy has begun to send cashier's checks instead of checks because she knows that Jason is stealing the money. He goes off to get a false checkbook um, and um, counterfeits these checks to take to the mom so that <coughs> she, this is so bad, it's just, it's just shaking. She won't receive any money from her daughter. She's so committed to having nothing to do with her. So she, it's a ritual where she burns these checks. Jason, meanwhile, is banking them all. So he's been accumulating this money and, and Quentin has some wind of, wind of that. She steals it at the end. Um, he goes home a number of times. He goes back to town. In one of his returns home, he sees Caddy driving off with this guy. He follows them in the car. Um, goes into a wood and parks the car and gets out expecting to come across them when they're having sex. He's, he's committed to showing how bad they are. There's that spirit again. It's not justice or a wrong. I mean, you don't want your daughter to be or your sister to be or your niece to be promiscuous. But his habit is to condemn out of hand. Um, they trick him and um, they go circle back to their car, get in and, and honk as they go off. And when he comes back, he finds the tires out of his car and he takes him a long time to get back to town. 
He gets back to town and when they come to dinner, he tells the story of having lent his car to a man um, who was pursuing the husband of a sister or something, um, who was off. It's his way of, of telling what happened with Caddy and the guy in the red tie without implicating her. So when the mother hears it, she thinks this is what happened with Jason's car. Quentin hears it as a story revealing and she gets furious again. So on, remember in, on Saturday night in the Benji episode, she and Jason quarreled. Now they're quarreling, except now he's indirectly told on her and she says, see what he does? Why does he treat me like this? Um, and she runs off in anger and um, the Benton episode, or I mean the Jason episode closes. A couple of things to remember about Quentin. In the Benji episode, her comment to um, the people present at the table is, why do I have to eat with this pig? That was her description of Benji. Jason calls her a bitch. She is nasty, self-centered. Here, she says the same thing, and when Jason goes after her in, the, in, the, in this Jason section to, to spank her, to tell her you know, that she can't do this stuff anymore, Dilsey comes in to try to stop him, and Quentin throws her arm at Dilsey to get her off and says something like, you old nigger. I can't remember, you filthy nigger, I mean. So um, there is something really nasty in her, you know. Even though, if I remember correctly, she's the one who gives the quarter to um, Lester to go to the show. If I'm right in that, I can't remember. So that's the Jason story. Um, it seems to me what Faulkner is showing us in Jason is, is deracinated man, uprooted man. He has no attachment to the earth at all. At the very end, he's, there, there's telling lines here. Let me just... Um, 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 at the very end, 263, but then I don't reckon even that would do any good. Like I say, once a bitch, always a bitch, and you just let me have 24 hours with any damn New York Jew to advise me what's going to do. I don't want to make a killing save that to suck in the smart gamblers with. I just want an even chance to get my money back. And once I've done that, they can, this is important, they can bring all Beale Street and all Bedlam in here, and two of them can sleep in my bed, and another can have my place at the table too. He has no sense of identity with the land or a community at all. They can come in and take my place. He's deracinated. He's, he's a man that's a product of the stock market. He lives in cyberspace, in abstractions. He's, he, there is no connection with, between him and the land. We can say he's unerotic, mo un modern, unerotic man. He lives totally in abstractions in his head. He's a parody of the masculine. Remember, I, I, I put out this suggestion when we were doing Othello. Othello is in some ways a perfect example, I think, of a really good man who's tortured by what Iago does with him. But remember that line when they accost him and the people around him are gonna pull out any swords and he says, put up your swords lest, lest the dew rust them. Put up your swords lest the dew. He's a fighter. He values his men. He doesn't want to waste man. He, does, he looks out for men. 
There is a sense in the, in the masculine intellect of living in structures. I think that's typically male, to live in structures and be efficient. So the danger for men is becoming like machines. I think it's a, increasingly it's a danger for women today, but it's a, it's a danger for men. Ju Jason lives like that. He, he lives in ideas. He lives with a sense that um, he's unjustly treated, that he deserves more in life, and life doesn't give it to him, so he's angry at everything. He just finds fault everywhere. Um, and he has no sense of any sins within himself. Nothing in his upbringing has helped him to do that. So, so um, I've got two questions um, about Jason. I want to take a minute for it because we're, we're, we're just about out of time. Two questions. We've talked about the action of each one of the sections, the Benji section, desire waiting. The Quentin section, desire frustrated and turned into despair. Turned into despair. How do we describe the plot of the Jason section? And secondly, I made the point, this is what's extraordinary about this novel. It's, this is not a splendid failure, even if Faulkner said that. Um, each section is presented f from the interior of the person, from inside Benji's mind, inside Quentin's, inside Jason's. So it's not third-person narrative like it would be in a Jane Austen novel. She's describing Elizabeth Bennet or a Dickens novel. We're not on the outside looking at a character as an object. We are inside and experiencing them as a subject, an I. That's extraordinary. We're actually allowed in the... I, I can't believe any of you will ever see an idiot the same again. But you'll know, you know, every, every time he starts crying and Lester's going, shut up, what are you moaning about now? That we see that Lester completely misreads him. That when, when Benji hears the word caddy, it immediately triggers the response because he wants her. Lester could not be more ignorant of that fact than anything he does with him. So we know something's going on inside another person that very often we don't see because we live so much in ourselves. There's something selfish in so much of what we all do. So um, we saw that each person had his own idiom, his own language, all right? Um, Benji lives in sensations. Quentin lives in abstractions. He's more intellectual. He he, he's not only susceptible to involuntary memories, the way Benji is, the, you know, the way they intrude in, his, in Benji's mind, he actually contemplates on them. He thinks about them. Some of them intrude the way they do for Benji. But Quentin lives far more in his intellect in abstractions, in philosophic abstractions, and the language is suitable. How do we describe Jason's mode of consciousness? What distinguishes him from Quentin and Benji. So two questions. How do we describe the Benji, or sorry, the Jason plot, the action, and how do we describe his mode? Because everyone is individualistic, everybody's different. And it's amazing, I mean, wouldn't you say it's true for every one of us in this room, we each have something individual about us that makes us different from another person, whatever goes on in here. It's, I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard to love, because it's so hard to know another person. If we don't learn to love them, we will never know them. 
will always be outside in our own heads. What, how would you describe the Jason action, the plot? If Benji's desire waiting and Quentin's desire frustrated, it's turned into despair, what do we say of Jason? frightening because I can see qualities of myself in Jason. It makes me scared to look at him. I think I told you all last week when I was reading, because I haven't read this in 25 years, when I, and that meant 25 years ago when I read it, I just didn't read it, because I didn't, I didn't begin to see what I saw this time. When I read the Jason episode, I want to go to confession right away. <laughs> scary. Confusing is Quentin and Quentin. Why did he do that? Quentin, the girl, Caddy's daughter, Quentin. I know. I mean, you're talking about the girl, and then the next thing, right? Saying, no, Quentin, no, Quentin. No, no. Quentin. I thought he suicided. Oh, you mean the daughter? Yeah, yeah. very confusing. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does that in a number of places. He does it with Jason, too. Oh. Yeah, I, I think because he's making he's asking us that's the way it is. And we have to work at it to see, because our tendency is to get into categories in our heads and when it really takes work to, to do this. I think that was the tradition of the, the South also, or that time period, oh, yeah. to name yes. your sibling, yeah. your kids yeah. after famous people or yeah. people. Have, and so there was, there was lots of yeah. Jefferson's and Jefferson's. Well, remember, this is Caddy's, Caddy's daughter. Yeah. Quentin had committed suicide. She loved her brother. Exactly. So, naming her. Arch, yeah, I mean, particularly after Quentin committed suicide. I mean, it, I, I can see Caddy doing that easily, wanting to remember her brother and somehow honor him. You know. Well, I was just going to say, to me, Jason was the desire of money. I mean, he was the stock market and the banking of the checks and. You know, duping his mom, the whole thing was just, he was so focused on money. Yep. Material. Yep. Yep. And it's interesting, he's a, he's a Scrooge about it too. I mean, he, except for the car, we don't see him buying. I mean, he's so possessive. Huh? His mother bought that. His and he, unlike Quentin, who wants to get rid of time, to ignore it, to do everything he can to consciously avoid it, Jason is aware of time all the time because I think for him time is money. He's so conscious of clocking in, clocking out, what's owed me, what I didn't get, what I do deserve and I didn't get. So he's caught in time in a way. Quentin is too ironically, but I would say that Th that it's that. Did you have something, Lois? Go ahead. Well, I just think he's very self-absorbed. You know, he's, he's, he's so he he himself. What can I do to advance myself, even if it means destroying other people? Yeah. He's a very self-centered. He's very bad boy. He is. He's really mean. He's really mean. He's really mean. He's really mean. He's one of the, I failed to mention this earlier, I mean, one of the sad things for me watching this is that nobody in the family corrects, the father doesn't correct the mother, he should be saying things to her as his wife, he doesn't. Um, you don't see the kids corrected very often in a good way. But, 
bearing with sins, you don't want to ignore them. Bearing with them, but somehow helping somebody get out of them, doesn't go on in that family. Didn't go on um, for all of them. Guilty kind of enables it all. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I would add to that that um, if we, if the, if Benji is desire waiting, constantly held there. Quentin is desire frustrated and turning to despair, wanting to end it, getting ready to end it all. I'd say Jason is desire for things and for vengeance. He wants to hurt always. The driving force in Benji or in Jason's life is getting back at Caddy because he blames her for losing that job in Herbert's bank. Over and over and over again, he says, she cost me that job. She, she, and the irony is, she didn't cost, he would, have, he would have only gotten it because of Caddy. And, and interesting, and Quentin knows this, and Jason doesn't. Herbert was buying Quint, Quentin off, offering him a job. It's his way of using people. Hmm? Herbert just, if you remember the scene when, when Quentin confronts him and says, and the, and the question comes up for Herbert whether he's going to tell on him that he got kicked out of that club because it would be a huge embarrassment to the mother particularly. Herbert's going to buy him off. And, and, we, and we know that he was going to offer Jason a job too. It was his way of buying off that family. When he, I mean, and if, if that's the kind of a man you are and your wife has an illegitimate child, what are you going to do? Because your whole way of looking at the life is that you can have what you want. God damn, I hate this. You can have what you want if you have money. So your way of dealing with the world is to buy everything off. Gerard's a lot like that. that that's a very, I mean, as the Faulkner presented, that's, that's a quality steeped in the north and a tension in the, in the south, except right now in the south, the south is in collapse. So I would say the two governing, the, there are these two things governing Jason. One is this, this love of money, but I would say even more important, he goes through the world feeling like the world hasn't given him what's due to him. He's entitled, particularly with respect to that job. He wants, he wants vengeance. There's nothing he does not hate. Everything is negative. He finds fault everywhere because it doesn't give him what he wants. And at the center of that is his wanting to hurt Caddy, to get back at her. So he steals all the money. And so if we look at each one of these men, in one sense, we can say that Faulkner's looking at the modern American man. The man who lives in his head, the man who lives in a spiritedness, the man who, like Dalton names, Quentin, the man who lives in his senses. And the, the question is, I mean, anybody coming out of the novel is, how do you get them together? There's nobody in the novel that pulls them together. And ironically, each one of them is defined by his relationship to a woman. And we're watching the sexual relationships disintegrate. What is it, what is it that modern woman is going to live for? And what is modern man going to live for? As we're watching this world fall apart. That's the first question. The second question, what's, what's the mode? This to me is almost more important. What's the mode for Jason? Benji's in sensations, lights, sparkles, you know, light, dark, sounds, Caddy's name. Quentin is intellectual abstractions. 
He's, in, he's far more given to his mind. How do we describe Jason's mode? His, his, in, in, the, the language that's peculiar to his way of relating to the world. Because every human person has a different. If you're going to be, it seems to me, if you're going to be in therapy, you'd, you'd, have, to, you'd have to struggle to, to come to terms. What's the particular mode of each person? Because it would be so different, so distinct in each person. When you, when you have to get into the inside of a person, because that's what Faulkner's doing for us here. What's Jason's mode? Selfish. Hmm? Selfish. He is selfish. Revenge. Well, revenge, but no, I'm asking about the language, the, the way of thinking. Quinn's is to idealize everything, right? Benji's just caught in his senses. Jason always makes it about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He looked at the negative of everything. Hmm? He looked at the negative of everything. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Going over to 238, just for a minute. We're, gonna, we're finishing up here. This will be the. Go to 238. As a matter of fact, hold on, go to 238, but go to the very beginning of the Jason episode. This is so good. I'm just here. On page 180, once a bitch, always a bitch, what I say. I says, you're lucky if you're playing. Out. Now, no, listen to the idiom, the language. Watch. Once a bitch, always a bitch, what I say. I says, you're lucky if her playing out of school is all that worries you. I says, she ought to be down there. Now, hold on to that. Um, Go back to 238, towards the bottom of the page. Chances were they'd stolen it anyway, so why should they give a damn? Like I say, blood always tells. If you got blood like that in you, you'll do anything. I says, whatever claim you believe she has on you has already been discharged. I says, from now on, you have go down a few lines. I says, if I've got to, are you all hearing that? Mm -hmm. Go on over to 241, middle of the page. few lines down in that middle. Like I say, let her lay out all day, all night with everything in town that wears pants. What do I care? I don't know any, he goes on it. Go down a few lines. I says you'll have to one hell of a time in heaven without anybody's business to meddle in, only don't you ever let me catch you at it. I says, I close, okay, what are you hearing? Not only I, when do you use phrases like that? Like I says, I says. It, that's one of, I really, it, there's this habit constantly, it's a spirit of self-justification. I says, I says. You bring that to everything you do. But isn't that the language that you use when you're talking to another person and you're describing something else? You're talking to a person and describing, narrate and says, like I says, and whatever is going on. What is that, is that clear? Isn't that the idiom you use? You hear that all the time, in, in, particularly in folk cultures, agrarian cultures, telling stories. Like I says, you're talking to somebody. And you're usually narrating a story that may involve you, probably does involve you, and you say like, and you keep, you keep introducing all these truisms, like a, a bitch, once a bitch, always a bitch, once the, you keep introducing these platitudes or truisms that nobody can quarrel with. And it's, part of this self-justifying. But what's the irony here? 
Faulkner's amazing. This is stunning to me. Huh? He's talking about himself. He what? He's talking about himself. He's talking to himself. Yeah. There's nobody there. Those are that's the language you use when you're talking to somebody. Like I says, right? You're you're telling somebody and you're narrating about a person. Who's there? Nobody. So is he trying to convince himself? I don't think he's trying to convince him because he already believes he has the answers to everything. He, yeah, he's just, but the irony is there's nobody there. He, he is in a world of his own, absolutely isolated. And yet the fiction is he's with somebody. The last thing you can say about Jason is that he's with anybody. This is as close to anything we saw, those of you who are, this is as close to anything we saw in Dante's Inferno at the bottom as we saw. This is a man absolutely locked up in his own world. Benji's, wait, sorry, Benji's locked up in his own world trying to get out. He wants to get to Caddy. Quentin is trying to run away from his world as fast as he can. Jason is stuck. He has closed himself in a world in which nobody else can get in. And the two defining acts in the Jason story are, are two of the most hurtful things I've ever seen. When Caddy comes to him after his father's funeral, she's you know, hiding behind the tombs and she comes to him and she says, I want to see my baby. I'll pay you 50. He gets the price up to 100. And then he takes the, the baby by and as soon as they're near, he tells the guy to whip and go. He goes flying by her. Why? To hurt her. And at the end of the story, when he comes home that night, he has those two tickets from Earl. And he, he dangles them in front of Lester and says, you want these? Give me a nickel. He knows Earl doesn't have a nickel. And he, and he does it again and again. Why, why does he draw that? Just a nickel, just a nickel. Finally, Dilsey says, burn it. He drops it in the fire. He wants to hurt that's all he wants to do. So in these three characters, in Quentin, Benji and Quentin and, and um, Jason, we're watching the, 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 the product of a family who is on the verge of modernity without God coming to, it seems to me, the only end you can do without him. So. Sorry, Doc, what? I was just saying, he's, he's telling himself a narrative about himself, where he's always right, always the center of it. Yeah. yeah. Don't raise your hand, Lois. I have an important question. Go ahead. The very first question you ever thought that you said when you started this book is, why did Faulkner stay just around these Right. I the answer. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to ask you when we meet next week. I would. I don't think I. Would. No, no, wait, don't. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with it. I want. I want that to be our. Because I. I don't think we can answer it until the end. We've got Dilsey. We've got the Dilsey chapter. And by the way, just looking ahead, one of the things I'd ask about the Dilsey chapter, she goes to church. If if you haven't read it, she goes to church, and this this minister will give this talk that's. I got, I got the recollection and the glory. and That is, the remembrance. I mean, for us it would be the, the recollection and the glory of Christ. 
I'm not going to tell you what Dizzy comes out saying because it's too important. But um, but she weeps. She just weeps. She's got Lester, her daughter, and Benji with her in church. She's weeping. She comes out of church weeping. Why does Faulkner end? And by the way, in the Dilsey episode, we're not in the consciousness of a person. We're in a third person narrative voice where we get the world presented objectively. Why does Faulkner do that in that last episode? We've been talking about the mode you know, of each character. Now we're in a third person omniscient or objective, really objective. Why does he do that to end the story? Um, why Dilsey and, and why this Easter weekend? That for me is the great question. We can't answer it until next week. I'm gonna, first thing we do when we meet, I'm going to give you guys a test. Oh, yes. Unless Linda wants to take it for you all. <laughs> okay, you guys have a good week. I hope you enjoyed this book. It's an extraordinary book. Extraordinary book. And I see so much of this stuff, all this stuff that we've been talking about in that book. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got it. Say the name of it again.